Welcome to the Space Cave. I'm David Huntsberger. A big warg to all of you out there. And hope you're not too hungover from your St. Patrick's Day, which long ago a friend of mine referred to as amateur hour. I don't know. It's when everyone that's not very good at drinking gets all nuts about drinking. So for the real pros out there, I doubt you got real excited about it or got way too drunk. But if it's your one time of the year that you do, again, hope you're not too hungover. April 14th, the Junk Show celebrates five years, actually 61 months, the appropriate amount of time to celebrate. It's uh, at 8 p.m. at the Copper Still Bar on Beverly Boulevard in Los Angeles, California. If you've never been and you like a variety of uh, mediums as far as creativity goes, magic, jugglers, musicians, storytellers, comedians, animators, filmmakers, it's all that kind of stuff there. So come on by and check it out. And my guest this week has been at the anniversary show and several other shows over the course of the show's life, but he won't be there this year because he recently moved to Minnesota, but he is a master of the dark arts, a true gentleman, just a delightful, wonderful person to be around and to watch perform, and more so to talk intimately with. This is part one with stand-up magician Derek Hughes. I should have probably just started recording the moment we sat down. I usually do kind of like a soft entry like that, where people are like, are we recording? I go, yeah. But we are like officially recording now, and I guess we'll see whether that was a good idea or not. So I can start talking? <laughs> you can start talking in a way that is recorded for posterity. Okay, now I am talking. Now you are talking. Derek Hughes, Master of the Dark Arts, stand-up magician, at stand-up magician on all of the platforms, I'll call them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Standupmagician.com. Got it all covered. Hard to believe I got it. Yeah. Like, that's a good one, I think. Pretty late in the game, and you uh, you had to sort of transfer, I believe, some previous names. Like, yes. At Derek Hughes. Yeah. Then- Why well, at Derek Hughes.net, and that is actually still the home base. Oh, okay. Like, when you go to standupmagician.com, it funnels you into... DerekHughes.net. I've noticed. That makes sense. In the bar. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the don- domain name changes. There's a DerekHughes.com that is dormant mm-hmm. in South Africa, a doctor. Yeah. I've offered him $500. No dice. No response. <laughs> I mean, that's American dollars. Yeah. What is he thinking? I don't know. Doctor. <laughs> this show is... I think there's a Twitter that I wanted to get at Space Cave. But it's space underscore cave, which isn't the worst thing in the world. Who has space cave? Someone that has like one tweet and just abandoned it. Mm. And I didn't have it in me to reach out. Like, I gotta get, I gotta, I can't have that underscore. I don't think Twitter really matters much with a podcast. So I, I wasn't too like, but I did think, you know, people get these properties that someone at some point is going to stumble on and knock on the door and look in the window and like, hey, who's, I want to buy your house. And there's just no one in the house. No one in the house. 
it's funny. You are reminding me of a a man owns an auctioneer house in Chicago, and they do a lot of uh, when a when a magician passes and he has a an impressive collection. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, that collection will find its way to Potter and Potter auctions. Okay, and they will do an online and live auction. Mm-hmm. And apparently, my friend Gabe, uh, he has asked my wife, who is a amateur sleuth, mm-hmm. she loves detecting. Um, and there's a guy who died in Arizona with apparently a fantastic and uh, expensive collection, not just of magic, but also of like Wild Bill Hickok sort of uh, ephemera, the, cool. the touring Wild West show yeah. ephemera, which was a big a big attraction in the day of the circus and in the day of the the big touring illusion show, you know, like yeah. Thurston and, and you could see Wild Bill Hickok or Barnum and Bailey, you know, and mm-hmm. they'd have these big sheets, posters that would go on the sides of buildings and right, all these wonderful things. So apparently this guy died and everyone knew he had this incredible collection, but it kind of never surfaced and he died with no heirs and no no will mm-hmm. and his house is there and his house is now um paying taxes to the state no one's sold it no one's it's this it the state the estate is dormant yeah and he's dying to have someone who will go to the house and break in <laughs> and see if the collection is sitting there yeah you know who's uh, gonna do it and what well, are the repercussions a, of- Charlene has had some interaction with a pretty shady accountant slash lawyer type guy. Yeah. And we kind of think maybe he maybe acquired and yeah. disbanded some of the materials yeah. in a shady way. Um, but she's, you know, gone to Google Earth and seen pictures of the house, <laughs> you know, and uh, the, currently, you know, and it's... This seems uh, like a plot for... A movie, but specifically maybe a kid's movie where they have to be the kind of like Monster House or something like that where like, this is haunted magician's house that's been empty for years and inside is a treasure, but. Right. I like it. And it is, a, it would be a treasure, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and the hope is, you know, that it's not damaged too because the word, you know, that stuff is called ephemera for a reason, you know, it, you know, paper, posters, mm-hmm. you know. One spilt cup of coffee. <laughs> That's all she wrote. And there goes the last copy of, uh, you know, that Alexander poster. Yeah. Do you have posters that through your career have, like, you don't think much of at the time because you're, and maybe now it's because we print them at, you know, like um, Office Max or something. So it's glossy and it just looks like, well, these are everywhere. This is every, every venue you go to has 11 by 17, but maybe even one of those in 50 years, a hundred years will start to be looked at like, Whoa, check it out. This band, or do you have any of those of, of yourself? I have one series of posters, a uh, couple incarnations that were done by an artist in Minneapolis ma- named Adam Terman. And at the time he was doing kind of graffiti art and screen printing. And he has blown up, mm-hmm. especially in the Minneapolis scene to uh, a local mural God, you know, you see his giant works on buildings now in Minneapolis. Nice. And, uh, but at the time, I had him. I commissioned him to make a, a T-shirt. I had a joke in my show mm-hmm. that uh, a f- I would have a female assistant. Someone joined me on stage to help with the trick, and I'd say, "Well, maybe you'll become a magician. You'll be the female magician, the uh, the magina, mm-hmm. the master magina." Oh, yeah. You did it last night. It's a funny joke. Yeah. Um, but I made T-shirts, mm-hmm. and and he designed this this T-shirt. And here's what I found out about the T-shirt uh, and why. 
I didn't make more t-shirts that say Master Magina. Uh, <laughs> the joke itself uh, feels to the audience like, the reason it's funny is it seems like I'm kind of making it up. Yeah. Like a, like a lot of good jokes, right? Mm. And then uh, I would offer, I would pull out the t-shirt and go, you know, actually I want you to have this, the Master Magina t-shirt. And I could literally feel the audience go, oh. Yeah, this is planned. Oh, he does this all the time. Boo. You know, and yeah. it was it was a real deflation. I used to do a t-shirt that took that exact emotion. That was the only reason I did the t-shirt is I would get toward the end of my set and then I'd be like, I actually have some t-shirts I'd love to sell you guys after the show. And then I'd unfurl it and it just said burrito expert but I had in no way ever referenced burritos during the show. So it was the opposite. Where the crowd's kind of of getting, course you did. <laughs> That's so good. They would just be like, what, what does that have to do with? And I don't know. I think it's funny if you just, I just think it's a fun, if I saw that shirt and be like, all right, I'd be friends with someone that's a burrito expert. Man, I love that if you were to say, yeah, it's a joke from a previous show, <laughs> but I got a lo- it wasn't very popular, so I got a lot of overstock. <laughs> so if you want the burrito expert t-shirt, I can bring it half back price. at any time. Um, you have a stockpile of burrito expert t-shirts in the I, closet? I still have the screen so I could print some more. The worst part about t-shirts, if you're trying to do merch, and merch is a wonderful way to sub- subsidize your income on the road. You know, you can really pay for a lot of yeah. your travel, you know, if you if you have a good piece of merch. Uh, t-shirts you have to have multiple sizes yeah and they're heavy and you don't know the demographic you should always get more mediums i've found over the years but uh you show up one place and just burn through all your extra larges and then like well every show after that who hey, do you have that an extra large i sold out the first night yeah so yeah it's too frustrating yeah, I, I, I was in milwaukee so, so the extra so larges are XLs. good. <laughs> I love you, Milwaukee. <laughs> but you're big people. Um, yeah, there's definitively like a look when you get in Wisconsin. Specifically, it's in every, it's everywhere. Sure. But, but Wisconsin was the first one to me. Like, whoa, there's some big people here. You know, I I recently moved. I was in LA for 20 years, and I I recently moved back to the Midwest where I grew up. I bought a house in Minneapolis. I yeah. told you this, and. Uh, I've been telling audiences uh, after 20 years of living in LA, I, I now now I live back in Minneapolis, so I can eat carbs. <laughs> it gets a laugh here yeah. when I'm back in LA, mm-hmm. and it does not get a laugh in the Midwest. They're like, I... "What? Why couldn't you eat carbs? What are you talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> there's a sensitivity there too. There's a there's a pride in like eat what you want, and also a sensitivity in like, hey 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 hey, come on. I remember the first time I did Appleton, I did Skyline, and I. I wasn't trying to necess- I wasn't trying to be like hurtful. I was trying to be like a little I'm going to pick at you a little bit. But it I think it really hurt people's feelings. I was like, "Well, it's my first time here. They say the Midwest is corn-fed. Who knew corn was so fattening?" Which is like a pretty rough thing if you're Funny. large, but I feel like the is a joke goes is is fine. But man, there was a feeling in the room of like, hey, hey. Well, and you got to think about that too. Like now I'm now I'm from the middle. I'm mm-hmm. back in the middle. And, uh, you know, you're watching the world through celebrity Instagram feeds. Yeah. And it's these selfies of, you know, picturesque, perfect people, mm-hmm. you know, duck lipping. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagine... Imagine that really hurt their feelings, David. I'm sure it Jeez. did. I was, it, Corn's now, all they have. That's Come true. On. That is true. I, <laughs> I, but it, I, maybe that ties into like when you are touring and you're, you see everywhere and sometimes you're like, oh, this place, they really like it if you make fun of this aspect about them. 
this place, they're a little sensitive. And you, then I feel like when it's so asinine, maybe less so for a band, but particularly if a comedian starts talking about political issues, not politics, but just issues that typically are anchored to being kind. Hey, be kind to people because of this. You stick to your thing. Stay out of this. And you're like, who knows more about the general population than performers who have traveled everywhere and interacted and tried to make them enjoy their life uh, at least for an hour or so? That, that to me is like you don't, you don't learn that always in the easiest way. You might make a joke. You go, ooh, don't say that in Philadelphia. They, they don't like that. And have you had that experience a lot of, of an audience kind of combating your message of love? I mean, I'd pick it and poke at religion a little bit. So that But you come... do it with, you're not like, yo, religion's stupid. You right. know, you're, you are really intelligent and you're approaching it from, let's really look at this. And I feel like it's always from a place of, well, you know, love. You know, there's a lot of love in what you do. And, you know, does that... <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess audiences that are maybe didn't that that just going out to the comedy club and the last time they went it was uh Shecky the the insult yeah douche you know mm-hmm. so maybe they're like hey this is I I'll still get people that come up to me regardless of how over the top I am about like I believe whatever you want but blah 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 and someone will still come up to me and like kind of patronizingly put their hand on my shoulder and go god bless as mm, if like, mm, oh, mm. if only your soul can be saved, you poor wretch. And I mm, feel like, all right, mm. that's fine. But I love, this also happens, which is someone will come up and want to buy some stuff and have like a cross hanging around their neck. I'm like, all right, I like that. We can still be friends. I kind of poked at some of your dogmas or what have you. But sure. But that to me, I mean, do you, just dealing in magic, the dark arts, do you deal with people that are like, I I cannot I can't believe my child came to this. I didn't know or things like that. No. I I I can thankfully say I don't think I've ever had an audience member you know rebel against what I'm doing because I I'm a, a satanist, you know, because it's <laughs> yeah. against the religion. Now I think part of that is though that a person that carries that belief system isn't going to go to a magic show. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Um I will say I was just at a, I was working at a corporate event where a couple of guys I was working with were doing roving close-up magic during the cocktail reception before the uh, the dinner show. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I was on the dinner show, and one of them came back and it's like uh, this woman has left three of the small groups I've approached. <laughs> Because it's against her religion yeah. to watch magic. And I'm like, well, I hope she doesn't. <laughs> I hope I don't call her on stage during the dinner show. Yeah. You know. What would she be doing? Like watching it sort of like. No, he would walk up and go, hi, I'm, you know, uh, I'm the magician during the cocktail hour to here to show you a little uh, close up mystery. And she would announce it's against my religion and she would turn and walk away. So he, she had walked away from him three times. He wasn't following her. It's just yeah. like, as it happened, she happened to be near and then, Oh, it's you again. And she would <laughs> depart. That would be, I would love to see that from, if she had to be in the dinner for work, everyone's retired to be present. And then she has to watch magic. What would she do? Well, that was the case and got, I, I do want, I mean, I, I didn't get any feedback that, you know, any employees had made, made a complaint. Like, yeah. you know, if there's someone who's overtly sexual in a corporate environment, you're going to get HR complaints. Yeah. And I guess she would have an argument to HR like, Hey, I had to go to this dinner and you brought Satan 
and <laughs> I, you know, on stage, and I, I was forced. You know, I, yeah. maybe she would have a complaint. What a weird, yeah, complaint. You know? I know to think that you, your, the medium in which you work would, by some people's standards, be grounds for like a. I went to HR because it infringes on my religious beliefs. That's so weird. And it also, I wonder if this sort of points to sort of that that zealous, dogmatic perspective that some, you know, hardcore religious people have that, that are wearing blinders, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I am magic. <laughs> I'm saying this is fake magic. I'm a sleight of hand artist, and this is uh, illusions to entertain your mind yeah. in a unique way. How is that against a religion? Yeah. Um, I think it folds into some way just playing cards in general. Playing cards are the devil's playthings. Well, what would they... That, that's true, especially with jokers and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wonder if where it starts for them and or... Because, you know, a big smoke and someone coming out... The, and thinking back to those old touring shows, like you were talking about the ephemera days of, oh, there's Faust. Like, there's a devil character... Ooh, boo. 100%. All these, you know, I have some, I have a beautiful Thurston poster hanging in my living room. Uh, and there's, you know, three little devils sitting at his feet, opening a book mm-hmm. of magic, looking into it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, there's a little devil whispering in his ear. <laughs> but the thumb and the, hey, I've got your thumb trick. Would that count to her? Would you be like, whoa, whoa, whoa hey. It's yeah, where do you draw illusion. the line? Yeah, where, where the do line? you draw the line? Mm-hmm. Right? Sponge balls? Mmm. <laughs> the devil's work. <laughs> oh, man. You mentioned like the 20 years thing, and that got me thinking like, because we've talked about this before. I think maybe even on, when you were on Professor Blastoff or maybe shortly thereafter, kind of talking about like the undeniability factor. Like you just work at it, you just get good, and then... Mm. You know, you did the junk show so many times, which now people, if you are coming to the junk show, highly unlikely you'll see Derek in that you live on the other side of the country now, but could see you there all the time and always so, so good. Like just always blowing the audiences away and that undeniability thing becomes a part of it. And there'd be periods where you go, Hey, how's it going? And maybe, you know, at times like, ah, this, this hasn't been great lately. And I remember it seemed like the last time we talked, you were saying like you were quoting Dana Gould, who we were just talking about before we started of at his, um, just for laughs thing, uh, his state of the comedy union. Yeah. yeah. The the, sort of the keynote of saying like, you're in it just by doing it. You're in it. That's the life. That's the world. And how does that feel being 20 plus years in and just still part of it? Still looking back and like, I made it happen. I never had to like duck out or I... You know, to me, I, I don't think I talk enough about that with people that are now as we're getting into this, you know, a couple decades worth yeah. of time spending it. There are people that you think back, oh, yeah, whatever happened to them? And you find out like, oh, they, they just work at a library in the town they grew up in or they, they had to go back or they had a child and they, or they got sick or they had to go take care of someone who was sick. Or there are a lot of factors that like, yes. you're lucky. You got to stay in it. And I'll be I'll tell you, I'm very mindful of those those forking pathways being a possibility in the future Mm -hmm. i don't i have great faith in in uh i have great faith in general Mm -hmm. you know uh it all it all kind of goes back to the real challenge for me uh in maintaining a a a career as a full-time performer was when i found out we were pregnant Mm 
Mm-hmm. And I called my mom in a panic. I'm like, we're going to have a baby. And should, I mean, should I get a job? Like, <laughs> should I get a job? You know, like it was in my, like what? Uh, and my mother was like, and things were going great. You know, like I, I was not stressed. I had a calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, well, this is, and God bless her for this. You know, she's like, uh, you've been doing this for a long time, you know? And I was, I was 39 mm-hmm. when I was having this conversation with her, Yeah, you know, a full grown man, you know, mm-hmm. uh, legit, legit man. <laughs> and, uh, she's like, you've been doing this a long time. Uh, and it's seems to be going pretty well. You know, from her perspective, back in Minnesota, she would hear news and, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't ask her for money. And uh, she's like, it seems to be going pretty well. Maybe you can trust that. That's awesome. And it was really awesome. And even though the calendar, you know, for the last 20 years has never really reached beyond three or four months into the future, mm-hmm. you know, beyond three or four months, it's an abyss. Yeah. Right. Um it always sort of falls into place. Yeah. And so I have, I've really developed some comfort and faith in that. Also not having the illusion that I don't have to do anything to make that happen. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of like a uh, death mindfulness almost, <laughs> you know, like uh, mm-hmm. I'm aware that it, maybe there will be a bad time, but I just haven't fully experienced that. Yeah. And I'm confident that I have the resources at my disposal and the network and relationships in place that I could uh, navigate that. Mm-hmm. You know, the big fear is, you know, like a stroke or, you know, some horrible knock on wood, horrible physical thing where it's like suddenly you're incapacitated because we got to go to the gig right. to get the check right now. Yeah. Um, and so the idea of owning content and having some residual income through, uh, you know, uh, owning yeah is a real nice idea and something i'm kind of looking towards in the next chapter um but faith i think you know uh yeah yeah to think too far into it and i'm gonna do exactly this and da, 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 da. and some people that works out for them which is staggering mostly it's like well i want to head in this direction and kind of just generally so starting out, like I want to do my tricks so that I get to do my tricks more and hopefully get paid to do the tricks and fly places, do them, et cetera. And Why do you just, talk about comedy like your tricks? <laughs> I, I got sick of saying <laughs> skits, so I turned them into tricks. People go, hey, man, I liked your skit. Please, they're tricks. And uh, I go do my tricks and I come back. And that was kind of it. And then that direction sort of works out. But to plan it in that I'm going to get – this thing that allows me to work X amount of weeks and I want to do exactly these clubs and these parts of the world, that's impossible. You just suddenly like, oh, you get a phone call like, this is crazy. I'm going to Virginia. I've never been to Virginia. And then off you go. Yes, but I do also think, and I'm not, I have not been great at this. Um, I've been really, I had an epiphany in in an improv class at Dudley Riggs Improv Comedy Theater in Minneapolis Mm -hmm. just out of college when I was just learning about Yes And as a you know a performance technique mm-hmm. i was like oh man i was probably high but i was like <laughs> this is like life like you can apply this to life <laughs> yes and and in many ways that's kind of how i have this career for me personally has unfolded i've opportunities have popped up and i've said yes and then put all my chips into that opportunity and 
through that effort, it's gone well. So that's opened a door to a new yes and potential. And it kind of has unfolded that way. Um, but I want to tell a story about a very successful friend of mine. Do you know Derek Delgadio? I know the name, definitely. He's a fantastic magician and an incredible artist and a really good buddy of mine. Mm-hmm. And Derek it mastered sleight of hand as a kid, total savant, uh, gained the affection of, you know, some of the masters, you know, who really kind of uh, appreciated him and gave him some encouragement. Ricky Jay um, being one of those mentors. And Derek had a very clear he was one of those people who had a very clear idea mm-hmm. of how he wanted it to be. Like you were yeah. saying, like very specific venues and themes. Yeah. And by uh, this age, I want to sell out Carnegie Hall or I'm quitting. Like some people have weird things like that. I've got to be on Carson or whatever, you know, Letterman, Conan by, by age this, that sort of thing. Um, not so much uh, deadlines, mm-hmm. but ideals. Okay. So I would call him. He was unemployed. I call him. I go, Hey, I got a local gig, you know, 1500 bucks yeah. for a couple hours of roving close up magic at this shitty party. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> well, are you busy? No. Uh, uh, well, are you, uh, you know, uh, okay. Yeah. I just hate, I just hate how I feel when I leave those gigs. Yeah. Okay. So, He's not working, but he's working Mm -hmm. in his space and developing his voice and his material. And that breaks through to a performance he does in the Peller with another, uh, like a two-man act that gets the attention of Neil Patrick Harris, who then brings the artistic director of the Geffen. And that leads to a run at the Geffen, which is an extended run at the Geffen. And then their show sells out, uh, breaks financial records for (laughs) for the small space at the Geffen. Tom Werner sees it. It goes to Broadway and does a sold out run in New York. And now he just, you know, off that momentum did a, another show produced by Neil directed by Frank Oz, who became a huge fan. And he did this, you know, over a year long run uh, at the Daryl Roth in New York to critical acclaim in New York. And it was exactly how he wanted his magic to be yeah. presented and perceived. And it, it made me take a step back and uh, sort of ponder the the potency, the power, and maybe the importance as an artist of saying no. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not even close to coming to mastering that because, you know, <laughs> I'm working the comedy stop in a few weeks. And <laughs> that has already passed me by. I, I mean, because I, I did have, even like Professor Blastoff, which is definitively like the most rewarding thing I did um, we built it on our own. It was at a time where like, you got to get a Comedy Central half hour special. And I always thought that was so frustrating. Like Viacom has to write me a check before I can enter into the kind of the artistic landscape. I hate that. Any other art, you create it there. Then if people like it, it becomes something they enjoy as opposed to like, we financed this thing and it's one of the eight we're doing this year. Therefore, it's one of the only eight good ones. And I thought the subjectivity involved in that was in just infuriating so then we start something that now we can like if i go to clubs and stuff there are more people that show up so beneficially from a stand stand-up point of view phenomenal you know like oh wow people but they care about the podcast not necessarily the this art form that i think i'm involved in they show up I, i've never seen your stand-up like that's not ideal you know you want them to be there for specifically that and I've seen that happen to so many people. They, you know, whether they're on a bit part on a TV show, they should, can I get a picture? Oh my God, I love the show. And the person's like, 
Well, then stand-up just becomes this novelty act I do that can finance my life, and it's not the art that I do. Um, so that was weird to me, to like, I kind of had to say goodbye to that sort of mindset of, I'm going to do it exactly how I want, because then I want it to get to here, because I did something that was was outside of that, and it was great, but for different reasons. And so, and then I do that TV show that by all accounts, people should, you know were like, what a dream come true, you're hosting a show, and I thought... That's not really what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be a comedian. I just want to be a specific type of comedian. So it's weird like to have that happen and then go, all right, I'm, I'm just going to yes and it. I'm just going to kind of wherever it goes. I, but when I hear stories like that, I love it that he had like such specific visions and, and that it worked out. As an observer, it did seem like his specific uh, intention almost sort of invited the cosmos yeah. to bring him the gifts he was asking for right. in the form he wanted them. Because he was saying no to half gifts and sort of opportunities yeah. um, in the meantime. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this, though. You know, there's also, you know, we live in an economy. Mm-hmm. And have you, you know, wanting to be an artist and wanting people to come to your show for the right reason. Mm-hmm. Um, have you put any time uh, or thought into sort of how you want to, how you want the money to flow into your world? Yeah. I don't think about that too much, which I guess I, sh- I mean, that was part of it. I'm as a solo guy, I'm just, all right, I can be very, um, whatever you'd want to call it selfish in that. No, I don't want to do that roving gig for 1500 bucks. It goes against how it makes me feel bad. Which I I did that when I was I I walked out of a, a corporate gig one time. I just handed the book or the microphone. I was like, I can't do this. Corporates are like that because you can't really have your full voice. Not at all. You're not free at the corporate event, though. You can have a lot of fun and you can you can bring some of your voice to that realm <laughs> if you're clever. I was walking around with a cordless mic and people were just aggressively talking and I went over to this these two old guys and I was like you guys haven't even glanced over or even pretended to stop talking while I've been up there what what do you guys have going on and this dude just so absentmindedly looked up and goes I paid for all this so I don't really have to listen to you and just went back to talking to his friend and I was just like okie doke and that was it I just like handed the person the mic I was like I can't same way your friend felt I was like I can't take how that feels sure crushing it's brutal crushing It's yeah. as if he had just like let a monkey go in the room. Like, all right, everyone be enjoyed by watching this monkey walk around. I don't care about it. I was that monkey just like, but I feel special. You guys, you, you booked me for this talent that I do. Like, no, he didn't. And it's, it is interesting. I've had just kind of going into that direction of, of corporate work. Every corporation is like a family and every group has its own culture. Yeah. That sounds like a shitty culture. <laughs> like if that's the boss, that's probably his energy around work too. I paid for all of you, so I don't really have to pay attention. Yeah. That's probably you're an employee that night. Yeah. So his represent his treatment of you is representative of how he probably treats everyone. Yeah. And I've done other corporate events where it is an incredible culture and the founder is so happy and excited for how the company is growing and they feel lucky that I'm there and we're going to have fun. And, you know, I've made it very important that a person of importance uh, introduce me. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's key. Oh, that's smart. You need a vouch, you yeah. know? Uh, and that harks back to advice I got from a, a mentor, great magician from Chicago named Eugene Berger. We lost him a couple years ago, but he was super important to me. And he just did close-up magic. He worked in restaurants for years and years and years. And in college, I did restaurant for nine years. I was a restaurant magician in, in the Midwest. And his it's a big long thing- college run. <laughs> like okay, college. high school and college. It, uh, it does- <laughs> It was high school and college, okay. uh, and and college did take me six years. <laughs> okay, because I, you know, there's a, there's stories, but uh, his whole thing was, you know, to be official, he helped me craft an intro. I would approach a table and go, "Good evening," and I would explain that, uh, you know, Jason, the owner of the restaurant, has invited me to share with you a few moments of mystery. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? <laughs> you know, and it was, at least it wasn't like, who's this busker yeah, yeah. approaching our table? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that sounds like a nightmare, like an uphill battle against a room who just want to, uh, people who just want to network. Well, the, the yes and part maybe comes with a caveat that like, if the initial response to it is good, you go to a corporate gig and the person has a great culture there. You go, I want to do more co- corporate gigs. I know more about it. I feel invited and ingratiated into it. I could have had a totally different response and feel than had there than that being. And that was probably like the fourth or fifth one I had done. They were just starting to use me in Austin. They, people would call the club for mm-hmm. holiday parties and stuff. And the first few went okay. And they were not always stand up either. And be like, you want to be a, you know an auctioneer for the night. And so you like, I would auction off stuff and then make little jokes in between. And those were fine. But then just one bad experience kind of really soured me where I was like, oh boy, I gotta go. Part of it, the dangling carrot of that paycheck too, because corporations tend to have a better budget than a college or a club. Yeah. Especially for a one-nighter. Mm-hmm. And uh, money, money's necessary and money's funny. I, I had a, Looking back, I was following Yes And. I'd moved from Minnesota to New York, and I was doing a lot of sort of performance art style venues, Cornelia Street Cafe, PS122 are these venues. This was in like 1998, 1999. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was just devil may care. You know, I moved out with a couple thousand dollars savings, and then... Uh, hooked up with a commercial agent and landed a couple of spots, which just floated me in the city, which was like amazing. Cause that's an expensive city. Mm-hmm. And I had a manager who, is that an ice cream truck? It is. Fantastic. Do you want Should to we take a break? Is that, we can uh, do that if you really want no, to. No, 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 I'm on a diet. <laughs> um, oh, wait, so you, you're talking about the city you moved to being Minneapolis. I, I grew up in Minneapolis. You grew Okay. So when I finished college, I moved to New York. Okay, gotcha. And in New York, I was very free artistically. I was just yes-anding all over the place, and money wasn't a thought even. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a blind faith, like, you know, that'll come. Yeah. It was doing the time and and developing material and, and uh, seeing other artists and being inspired. And I had a manager that had uh, the opportunity. She had some access. She had a celebrity client, so she had access to some audition rooms out in L.A., so I went out for a pilot season. And I booked, uh, I was mid-season, I was added to a sitcom mm-hmm. with Jaleel White, Urkel. Urkel, yeah. Yeah. And this sitcom, it was called Grown Ups. Uh, so Adam Sandler has destroyed my IMDb page. Like, <laughs> oh, you were in Grown Ups? That different Grown Ups. Um, 
But it was exciting. It was the last, you know, seven episodes of the season. And uh, the money was really great money for, you know, a guy in his mid-20s. Yeah. Who just moved to town. And and if the show got picked up, it was real serious money. Mm-hmm. You know, like the my agent was this amazing, you know, battle axe agent, Iris Burton, who was legendary uh, in Hollywood uh in the in the 80s and that just to interject real quickly sucks that that doesn't exist anymore i think everyone grows up with seeing that representation of you got stars kids i'm gonna make something of you hope you're ready to make money and then you get an agent and they're like how's your social media and you're like what just get that built up and then we'll work that was a perfect Iris impression, by the way. Oh, they're I all I mean, like that. no joke. <laughs> and look, when we did, I did a different series later on with her, and uh, she cut the line to Les Moonves, and he was cool with it. Nice. And, you know, she had his ear for, I mean, this woman was like, she was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so she had negotiated this really incredible quote if the show got picked up for another season. Yeah. And... That twisted my head, David. You know, like I was like, oh, oh, I could be rich. Yeah. So then when I first came out here, I was going into these audition rooms and I didn't give a shit. And that's what made it. That's what made my auditions exciting. Mm -hmm. And the work I was delivering, you know, good. Yeah. Was I was just about finding the truth, finding the bit, mining, mining the text, connecting. But once in my unconscious mind, real money was on the table. Looking back, there was a handful of years where I was going into the rooms like, what do you want? Yeah. What do you need? Mm-hmm. I'll do it. Just give me that money again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it really, it really fucked me up. Um, and, you know, I wasn't, you know, arrested on <laughs> a lot of big projects during that period of time. To get your, it's a great cowboy saying. They always say, like, uh, especially riding any rough stock, they go, just keep your mind in the middle and just focus on what you're doing. And the middle means you're just looking between whatever you're riding, their shoulders. If you just follow that, their head leads to that, you're going to be right where you need to start looking around where you want to land or how the people in the crowd are looking at you, et cetera. You're going to fall off. So as long as you just keep your mind right there in the middle, and there's more to it than that on a phil- philosophical side of just like, don't let all that outside crap get in there. You're talking about like show riding. I'm talking like about like, 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 no, no, I'm talking about getting like on a bowl or something like that. Oh, wow. So that'd be like, keep wow. your mind in the middle. Wow. Here you go. And really, so you look, and especially on a bull, they're so wide. Yeah. I never rode any bulls, but I rode a lot of steers and calves and bucking horses. And You did? Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. From Nevada, man. Cowboy oh, man. country. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I grew up, I, there was a period where I was just starting young horses. And so I would like, they would, they would give me the biz every now and again. And I'd, you know, keep my mind in the middle and like tune them up a little and, but there's something about that of just like, okay, I could look and see how's my, how are my feet? How, where are my hands at? Where the, where's the fence? Is he going to run into the fence? But instead I, you know, you just kind of keep legitimately your mind in the middle and entertainment is probably the hardest. I, I just, you know, guy sitting next to you on a flight, someone wants to know what it's like. There's just no way you can really give them an insight into that, into being in that room and being like, I've had a taste of a rocket ship life where I have a palace and then that was sort of that disappeared. And so now I'm back to, you know, hearing a bell ring and knowing I got to be like a short order cook and make that meal, the next meal. 
but when I'm done with this, I'm going to go back to working on my craft and hopefully get back up to that level. And there's so many people that have been through that. It's like the Sisyphus thing of getting so close and all the way back to the bottom. But maybe it's not the bottom. It's just somewhere else. It's, it's, I know what you mean though. That, that can be really tough of like just getting your mind back together to then, and to the outside observer, they would, they didn't, maybe they don't remember that. They just know you from America's Got Talent. And so you're like me, this person you're seeing for the first time thinking I just showed up yesterday. There's a long history before this, you don't know about, you don't care about. And maybe in 10 years, it'll be some other thing. Sure. And that's just kind of the trajectory everyone's on. But hopefully they just focus on the track right, right what's next. And that's when I'm happiest mm-hmm. is when I'm focused on the middle, so yeah. to speak. When yeah, I'm yeah. in the moment and, you know, thinking of this, this set, mm-hmm. this, uh, this deadline, yeah. you know, if there's, a, if there's a creative deadline, you know, mm-hmm. focusing on what is at hand. Yeah. And not projecting too far into the future and not lamenting too much into the past, for sure. The <clears throat> the world that we've entered into is kind of knowing that like, and there's a lot of incentives now, especially for comedians, you know, you get your album recorded and then there's royalties and things like that, people listening, but it it legitimately exists in a cloud that is intangible. If, if the technology that processes that all disappeared your life did not happen there's nothing physical to prove maybe you recorded some albums physically pressed them or have a few cds but that technology is gone too so it's not carved in a rock somewhere that someone's going to see it it only exists really in the moment that you were there with those people and i think that's why we entered into it like that's the best feeling when you're in the room when you feel it when you're just focusing on like this moment and getting the timing just right on this thing it's kind of a shame in a weird way that now that can be transferred out of that room and distributed all around the world. And people go, I like that album. You're like, you know what? It's, it, you liked it, but you didn't feel it in the room. No. And there really is. I think comedy, comedy is very much like magic. It is a live experience mm-hmm. um, at its best. Mm-hmm. And magic for sure is a live experience. Oh, yeah. Because there's something about seeing something impossible in the flesh that just just really never will translate to yeah. any recorded medium i that i believe that blaine was brilliant to turn the camera onto the reactions yeah and that was a step in the right direction of this must be what it feels like to be there but it's it's still not there and people are so incredulous through the the uh the filter of the screen, you know, I, uh, I produce on a show called Carbonaro effect, which is mm-hmm. a hidden camera magic show. I've seen a little bit of it. It's really fun. Yeah. And, uh, really an amazing creative challenge. And the star of the show, Michael is just fantastic and so talented and, uh, a dear friend and really fun to collaborate with. And it's fun to get crazy and just think what's impossible. Mm-hmm. And then let's make that happen. But last season, uh, we had a woman literally, you know, we're, we're dealing with real people and every, every person you see being amazed and fooled on that show is a real person it's, that is not in on it. I, it's hard to imagine someone being good enough at acting to pull that off and that they, you know, someone comes in, they, this is me giving an example of like the episodes I saw. Someone comes up, to a dry cleaner's counter. They put their keys on the counter. They start digging in their purse. They look up, their keys are gone. 
and then he doesn't notice it, doesn't acknowledge it, and then hands them a plastic box that is locked on all sides. Their keys are in it. And then he doesn't acknowledge it. And they go, what? what, what? And he, oh, is that yours? And then the per- that's not my, my keys. Yes, the box. No, what do you t- what did you do? I didn't. Did you bring this in like this? And now, like the game has begun. That that aspect, I just think, is so fascinating. That all of our minds watching on TV. Wait, 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 wait. How did? Where did the box come from? Were those replica keys? How do they get the keys in there? How do they locked? How do they do that so quickly? Sure. Because and there there is two there's two audiences on that show. There's you, the home viewer, mm-hmm. and we have to entertain and fool you with right. our magic. And then there's also the real live Mark who doesn't know it's a magic show yeah. and doesn't know they're on TV. Right. And, you know, our greatest challenge in that show, and it's a it's a wonderful it's like it's like writing haiku. You have those limitations, which frees you yeah. in a way. The limitations allow you to be more uh, f- free flowing with your creative effort because you have these parameters. Yeah. You know, if you, anything goes, well then you can never start. Yeah. But if you have a little sort of uh, limitation, a bottleneck, well, now you know exactly what your task is. And our task is to never have anyone go, wow, that's great magic. <laughs> if they say, this is magic, we have failed. Mm-hmm. They need to think it's an incredible or impossible product or a technology of the future that's now happening mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, just impossible things. The little uh, things where he walks around, like what would be the width of a door? And when he gets from one side to the other, his clothes are totally different. These are my favorite. Just- we call them drop downs. And it's it's not so much magic. It's to see if people will notice. Mm-hmm. And uh, my favorite is we're at a library. He's behind the counter taking books. There's a pile of books. And he's holding up books, offering them to this elderly woman. And he's wearing librarian clothes. And then he, he kind of bends down below the counter and stands up holding a handyman book. And he's now wearing a complete handyman outfit. And he's like, you're handyman? She's like, no, no, no. And he's like, oh, okay. And then he drops down. He holds up, what about Shakespeare? And now he's dressed like yeah. Romeo with the, you know, the, the puffy collar and, you know, and she doesn't <laughs> notice, you know. And then uh, he drops down and it's a uh, sci-fi and he's like dressed like a robot. <laughs> Instant, you know, quick change stuff. Yeah. Not real magic from a purist standpoint, but. Uh, quick change is a whole nother type of, you know, sort of fun entertainment. But I love those because people are like totally scattered. And this woman is like, wait, she sort of notices on the last one. She's like, oh, wait, no, oh, I know. Um. And she's like, <laughs> you can see it's dawning on her. She knows him. She's seen this before and something's up. Mm-hmm. She's like, I know you. It's David, <laughs> David, his name's Michael. Mm-hmm. He's like, uh, yes. And he's just, cause he will yes. And till the end of the day, uh, yes, David, David. And you're thinking she's going to go Copperfield, right. Or Blaine, mm-hmm. you know, David Chappelle, <laughs> Dave Chappelle. And he's like, yes. And she's like, ah, I knew it. He's like, I'm Dave Chappelle, <laughs> the white magician at the library. <laughs> it was perfect. Um, but so we had this one woman who, uh, she kind of recognizes him, but but she doesn't recognize him. She says, you look like that guy on that TV show. Mm-hmm. He's like, what show? Uh, and she's like, it's called the Carbonaro Effect. Oh, well, what's that? I don't know it. She's like, oh, it's like a magic show and impossible things happen, but, and the, and you know, uh, it's hidden cameras so that people don't know it's happening. Uh, and she goes, but you know what? Everybody on it is a paid actor. They're all, they're, it's all scripted. They're all paid actors. And he's like, Really? And then he commences to hatch a duck egg in his foot bath at the spa. Mm -hmm. And she's amazed, (laughs) blown away, fried. Yeah. 
And then he reveals, I'm Michael Carbo- Carbonaro, and you are on the Carbonaro effect. She's like, what? No, stop. Oh, my God. And he's like, now what do you think about everyone being a paid actor? And she's like, well, I'm not, but everyone else is. <laughs> like, there's no winning. Yeah. You know, so magic needs to be live. Because when you're live, then you can't, you don't have the out of, oh, it's bullshit or it's camera tricks or. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I love having it on the junk show. And I um, spoke to, great, now I'm blanking on his name, from Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, um, podcast in the book series. Oh, God, why am I? F- anyway, uh, he's a great skeptic, very fascinating dude. And, uh, but he was saying magicians in a lot of ways are, they're always in that camp skeptic because they they recognize when when someone's trying to fool them and pass it off as like genuine kind of like you know snake oil stuff where he's like magicians love to really unearth that or show the hypocrisy there or like here here's how you're being fooled and so to them flip it the other way and be like well how can we do the thing that everyone feels that way about that's not real everyone's in on it every single person is in a truman show Mm mm-hmm Really? Yeah. You think True TV has that budget? <laughs> <laughs> there is a natural feeling that way, though, to just be like the idea that magic could transfer over onto a screen where there's you know opportunities for editing and things like that. The, the natural skepticism there is like, why would I even watch magic on TV? Because they could cheat me. Just knowing the opportunities to cheat me are so many more. That's true. And there are contemporary magicians putting material on TV to streaming filmed formats and they're you know just unabashedly using mm-hmm. some shady techniques in from you know some technology that enhances their magic for the home viewer in a beyond impossible way and i think it does magic a disservice because now when they go see that person perform live nothing they do live can compare yeah to what they did on their television show right and if you can't recreate it all you are is disappointing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and I think that's what's great about watching a com- a comedian you love on TV. Then when you get a chance, if you're fan enough from what you saw on television to go see that person live, you're going to be blown away yeah. because the charisma and the power of a live audience cannot be seconded. You yeah. know, there's nothing like a room, a group mind that is hypnotized by a human being's creative and unique thought process. Mm-hmm. Whew, what a ride. So good. And the, the the little asterisk there is that they have to be a comedian. Sometimes people are just actors and they're on a hit show and they book a theater or comedy club and you go watch and then go, oh, they're funny and I like them, but not much of a comic. They're not even a good storyteller. And that is a disappointing feeling to be like, I want to see them work in the thing that they love and are good at. And that's, I would call that a personal appearance, mm-hmm. not an artistic right. presentation. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, it was fun to see them. <laughs> yeah, I we I got to see them in person, and mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, yeah, to be uh, to be mesmerized. You know, Jake Johansson talks about hypnotizing the audience, mm-hmm. and I thought that's really great. You know, <laughs> he's like, you really we get them through rhythm, and you know, I just worked with Tig. She's such a master. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Cause it's the, her pace. Yeah. You know, and it is, it's slow, but it is not slow. Mm-hmm. She ha- sucks everyone in. So we're just on the edge of our seat. 
And she's not afraid to leave it either. Most people get involved in a story and, oh man, I got to get to this line or I'm going to lose them. And she'll be at that moment and someone will just go <clears throat> in the crowd or do something or go, that, that little bit of discomfort that she creates where people are sitting there waiting and it escapes their body and they go, ah. and then she'll go, oh, what was that? And then now, now the whole audience has left that story that they were enraptured by mm-hmm. and are suddenly, yeah, what was that sound? Let's go over there. She did that last week with uh, someone unwrapping a piece of candy and it became a, a through line for the rest of the night. <laughs> and we got to know this, these people with the candy and mm-hmm. uh, so satisfying. Yeah. And so present, you know, it, it reminds me of this, the, the, that Eugene Berger, the teacher from Chicago, uh, who I was so lucky to know and learn from, he talked about the importance of scripting magic because a lot of magicians, especially young magicians, will learn a trick mm-hmm. and their script is, okay, here I have some cards and now I'm going to shuffle them and now I want you to touch one, okay, and now you look at it. Okay, and I'm going to look away, and now you put it back. And their script is describing the the facts right. of what of the procedure necessary for the trick to happen. Mm-hmm. And there's no story, and there's no interaction. It's just you know, um, there's nothing. Well, that was what I wanted to talk to you about, our mutual friend, Ben Seidman. We were getting into it, and I was like, oh, let's bring that up on the show. So would you want to take a little quick break, and then we'll get into like the real nuts and bolts of building a trick, building a story, The as much as you can Sure. Get real quick, though, just just how this relates to Tig uh, and, the, and the candy wrapper. Uh, this, per, this teacher talks so much about the importance of scripting, and as a magician, you really got to sit down and, and script it. Mm-hmm. Even if it is just description of what you're doing, you have to ha- at one point have written it out the way you have pre- been presenting it yeah. on the page. Gotcha. I mean, this was tantamount. And he said, this is the key here. The script is there for when the show doesn't happen. Yeah. And Tig, her script is her prepared set. Mm-hmm. And the show is the candy wrapper. <laughs> so if the candy wrapper never happens, we're going to be satisfied. Yeah. And we're going to love what we saw. Mm-hmm. But the candy wrapper takes us into what we truly there to see, which is a human being's thought process in the moment. That is great. I never, th- I mean, I love that analogy and specifically like with the candy wrapper attack, because that is really what it is. I, we did a show on, we were doing a podcast tour, but then she did a couple of standup dates and this was like right at kind of the peak after the live album had come out. And so she didn't have a lot of material ready and she was kind of only almost banking on like, I think those blast off shows were a nice, safe spot because we you know three of us kind of batting it around and yeah you know she doing the stand-up shows just was looking for that candy wrapper the whole time and i was sitting i was so nervous backstage or like to the side watching the crowd like are they gonna get sick of this at any point they paid they're in a beautiful theater are they gonna be like hey we came for this scripted show yeah and she just goofed around the whole time and they loved it they were just thrilled the whole time and i was like oh i i just don't that's not just it's not how i operate for whatever reason, sure, like, I would be too nervous just out there. Like, is this something? But I'm fortunate. It's a little. The opportunity is built into what I do because I use a lot of audience participation. So yeah. I'm calling people on stage. Yeah, and so the candy wrapper is sort of built in if I'm willing to see and listen. You, know? I, you did one last night that I would imagine you've probably done before, but I hadn't seen it. And it was when, so not to give too much away, but a person is sitting on something that you use. You bring it up 
and you rubbed it on the new person and you said it was still warm from the person having been sitting on it. I was like, if that was a transition from what was initially a candy wrapper to now that's like in the script, that's, that's really nice that you can just build this database of like, Oh, that totally happens. But doesn't that happen with, well, maybe, maybe it does happen more with the, with the audience interaction though. Yeah. And you're talking about sort of like, I look at some of my routines that have like moments like that, that are sure. That's a surefire, huge laugh mm-hmm. that I can trust. Right. You know, I can rest assured yeah. that when I rub this, you know, this envelope that someone's been sitting on for 15 minutes against somebody else's cheek and say, and it's still warm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to yeah. work. <laughs> what a blessing, yeah. you know? Uh, and, but that did happen one night as a as a riff, mm-hmm. and then big laugh. Note that and keep it in. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of I look back on some material and I go, how did I ever even write that? Because I didn't sit down and write some of it. It accumulated like a snowball, like we're going to talk about with Ben Seidman. Yeah. Because right now he's at the bare bones. Of not, a trick. Not, many, not many yeah. words, but he's got the trick down. Mm-hmm. And the trick once once we get a trick down and it can fool an audience, that's step one. Yeah getting the technique and the effect and then turning it into something that's worth watching is a whole nother story. All right. We'll do a quick pause and we're right back into it. Great. We'll come back for part two next week. Invest in more of that. Learn more about magic, the, the code of ethics, creating tricks and just what goes into like how much practice. And I didn't, I'm sure most people in the interview magicians spend the whole time going, come on, man, just tell me one. I've known Derek long enough to not do that. And I, I think being around magicians, maybe just from the junk show and things like that over the years, I, it'd be the equivalent of someone coming up to a comedian and say something funny. Yeah, you must be funny all the time. Do something funny. So for whatever that's worth, if you find yourself around a magician, maybe hold off on uh, asking how a trick is done. I think they're more, more often than not excited to show you a trick and, and do it for you and have you be baffled. But as far as telling you how it's done, I've never really known them to enjoy that, for whatever that's worth. Okay, um, thanks to those of you who support the show on Patreon. This month's episode was an, an additional hour plus with Demorge Brown, and there will be more bonus stuff coming up later this month as well. So if you'd like to help support the show, it helps with music and buying beer and hosting the show and bandwidth and da-da-da-da-da, all that stuff. It's really helpful, so try to keep the show devoid of ads advertising this is about the only one you get i try not to have it be too repetitive but then weeks go by and i realize i forgot to mention it so lately i've been doing it more i hope that's not bothersome anyway thanks to those of you who do support the show it is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you and thanks to dan as always for putting the show together rob crow for the theme song hope the ides of march are kind to you and uh that you enjoy some of the sunshine that seems to be coming around in the Northern Hemisphere. For those of you down under, um, prepare for cold. And obviously people in New Zealand sending a lot of thoughts and kindness and comfort your way. Um, whew, lot to get into there. But this show really isn't about that other than just be nice to each other out there. It's a big rough world and um, be a nice to people you run into, strangers, etc. That can't hurt anything. Hopefully it'll make it a little bit better. Thanks for listening to this show. Here's some music now. This is from Sam Valdez. It's called Farther Away. I'll see you next time. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave. You're like a dream.